From KLCC Media, this is the Oregon Grapevine. I'm Barbara Dellenbach. The Oregon Grapevine highlights fresh-pressed conversations with people who are actively and passionately creating the present and future in which they wish to live. Tilka Elkins is an artist, writer, and curator focused on site-specific painting and social practice art. I'd like to start with Wild Pigment Project, which you describe as promoting ecological balance and regenerative economies through a passion for wild pigments. Please explain what that is and how that works. Yeah, thanks. Thanks, Barbara, for having me here today. Um, I would love to. So yeah, Wild Pigment Project is it's an organization that connects artists to land through a passion for wild pigments. So before I go on there, I'd just like to pause for a moment and, and talk a little bit about what a pigment is. A pigment, probably most of you know that a pigment is something that artists might use, and uh, artists consider a pigment to be a colored dust that mi- that's mixed with water or oil to make paint. Um, until synthetic pigments became dominant in the late 1800s, pigments were mostly mineral, so coming from stone or earth, and plant colorants were mostly not used for paint but for dyes because they're soluble in water, whereas a pigment is insoluble, so it will sink to the bottom of water, whereas you know, the plant dye pigments will just stay floating there. Um, but you can turn these soluble dyes into insoluble pigments through a process, a kind of magical process called laking, that binds the plant dyes to the mineral. So it's like dyeing the mineral. And then you can dry these out and uh, use them as you would a dry pigment to make paint with. So um, when I say wild pigments, this is a, a term that I coined as a sort of umbrella to bring together uh, painters and dyers who work with pigments and um, dyers who turn dyes into paints, painters who use dyes, all, all of that sort of interaction. And then maybe just a quick word about the word wild. Humans have been shaping what colonial culture calls wild places for hundreds of thousands of years. So when I think about wild, I think about places that actually include humans. So for me, the definition of wild is any place where there's an interspecies community. And really for me, that which is wild is that which is in relationship. What happens if a human hasn't been there? Then under this definition, it isn't wild, it's something else? No, I I wouldn't go that far. (laughs) I, I consider wild places to be sort of, could be an urban place, could be a remote place. There are a few places on the planet where humans don't go, haven't been, but not that many. So, yeah, humans are just one of uh, one of the large interspecies community. Obviously, pigment and dyes and, and especially ones that are naturally produced are ancient, ancient, ancient. Is there a movement to kind of bring them back in as these, in, as kind of, I don't want to use, synthetic is the word, not fake, as synthetic dyes and, and art was created, did non-synthetic options kind of fade into the background and are they being brought back? Yes, absolutely. That is a good assessment, I think, especially in uh, dominant culture, in Western culture. Um, In 1846, uh, aniline dyes were um, brought into being, and even before that in the 1700s, there were some pigments considered synthetic. It's kind of a spectrum, as um, historians will tell you, color historians. But um, 
after the aniline dyes came in, they pretty much replaced uh, traditions, Western traditions of what were called color men. And these were people who made, prepared all the pigments that artists used at the time. So they, uh, a lot of those secrets were very carefully guarded. And there, there were mineral pigments, there were botanical pigments, um, there was alchemy, uh, and, and it was, you know, it was difficult in a way to access color. Um, after the synthetic dyes were developed, they were much more widely developed, much more widely available. And so, you know, um, Monet is one of the artists who was sort of on this cusp, and many of his colors were these like newly exciting synthetic organic, because they come from petroleum products, um, synthetic organic pigments. To say more, to address your question, yes, I would say in the past five years especially, and especially through the pandemic, the uh, popularity of um, artists working with pigments that I call wild pigments, natural pigments, has really increased. And there are a lot of reasons for this. I've been part of this movement and uh, many fabulous, what I call pigment practitioners all over the world have been doing this work and sort of I think um, that connecting with materiality and with place and with relationship with place has um, really come into the forefront for a lot of people who are looking to have that connection with the planet and to heal what is going on, um, both personally and um, at a large scale. How does it connect this project and, and pigments? Does it connect? And if so, how does it connect with, let's say, archaeology or learning out mm -hmm. prehistory or getting to understand more of where we came from and where maybe site-specific projects are in place? Yeah, it's very relevant. I mean, um, you know, as I've studied uh, pig mineral pigments, especially ochres is, is ochre is a term that's used to refer to an iron-based mineral pigment. Um, and ochres are one of a relationship with ochre is one of the most ancient human relationships. So humans have been, some anthropologists say, formed by our relationship with ochre, which is 300,000 or more years old. There's a lot of study to be done um, with pigments. And actually, this is maybe a moment for me to mention an exciting um, opportunity coming up. The Pigments Revealed Symposium is an academic-oriented symposium that uh, brings together a lot of science who, scientists, anthropologists, people who are studying these sorts of things. That's an online thing, June 21st to 24th. There, there are people in these fields doing incredible work, also in environmental sciences, ecology with pigments, and looking at the human relationship with pigments. Before we leave the pigment revealed symposium. Yes. You said it's online. Is that yes. the name of the webpage people go to to find it? How do, how do they go uh, there? Yes, good question. It, Pigments Revealed International is actually the name of the organization. And so um, they can find that if they Google that. This question may be out there, but I'm, I'm going to ask it because I suspect you have insight. As the world talks more about climate change and different understandings of how the world is working. And, and for instance, in California, when the flooding just happened, people were starting now to find a bunch of gold and a bunch of other stuff that they mm -hmm. hadn't found. So how, how is that happening? Is the earth bringing up things that hasn't been there? Or how, how are you all finding, you pigment practitioners, mm -hmm. how are you finding your substances? And is that changing over time? Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And in fact, 
uh, this isn't related to gold, but um, a recent a recent contributor to Wild Pigment Project, which sends uh, there's a subscription called Groundbright through the project, which sends pigments to people every month, and um, a recent contributor artist who works with pigments who contributed pigment to this subscription, uh, Shineha Bigham. She is um, uh, someone who works in public works with water, and so she's often digging wells and being exposed to pigment in that way. But she made a contribution to Groundbright that was called um, Wildfire Redwood, and this was uh, after the giant fires moved through California in 21. She found some of this, uh, some redwood in a, uh, at a fire site and prepared it, made it into a beautiful, rich carbon pigment, and contributed it. Then we, we return, part of this project is, is to offer a reciprocal um, offering to the land where this pigment is from, and so that donation went to the people who are um, working to protect uh, their ancestral lands. Conversations with Shinha were about um, the land and how the land is changing, and are part of a direction that Wild Pigment Project has gone, which is away from individual foragers who are donating pigment that they have gathered um, soils or, or botanicals and towards uh, individuals who are working to rehabilitate the planet through incorporating what we call waste stream pigments um, uh, into their palettes. So Wild Pigment Project through Groundbright now offers monthly little packets of these um, pigments gathered from the waste stream and waste stream or from, you know, damaged sites where where the, the reciprocal re relationship with the site can return energy, as with the wildfire redwood. Some of the other waste stream pigments have been um, iron oxides from polluted waterways, waterways that are polluted by uh, acid mine drainage. So it's possible to actually remove this iron oxide from the waterways and it creates this gorgeous rich sort of orange rusty red pigment that's really soft and great to work with that was contributed by artist Dana Driscoll in Pennsylvania we've also had uh, plants that are I don't always use the word invasive though that's a word that's used for these plants uh, plants that are not the that are crowding out biodiversity is one way to say it um, and those can be made into inks and dyes. We've had a, a buckthorn berry lake that I actually contributed. Um, and upcoming, we have a beautiful blue copper pigment contributed by um, a group of three people. Jason Logan, who's written a great book called Make Ink, and artist Catalina Christensen, and uh, who's an amazing artist in the UK, Lucy Mays, who uh, has a pigment company called London Pigment, and all the pigment that she makes, uh, all those pigments are pigments from the waste stream. So she crushes, crushes bricks, she makes iron oxides from rusty metal, she uh, makes these uh, copper pigments out of disposed um, copper scraps, and um, they're all coming together to do a copper pigment in uh, August. Are the projects that are being created from these pigments across the board? I mean, is it visual art that we're talking about? Is it books? Is it clothing? Is it all of those things? What what are artists choosing to do and and messages that they are choosing to create with these pigments? Mm. 
Yes. Well, it is. Yes. The answer is yes. All of those things, books, artwork, clothing. I mean, it's, it's really quite exciting. You know, I, uh, I know someone who just made a tarot deck that was made with prints. Um, they were monotype prints that Marjorie Morgan made by, uh, you know, using botanicals and a, a system that she developed um, for these as printing inks. There are artists making all sorts of imagery, and in fact, um, the best way to get a sense of that is to check out uh, an upcoming Wild Pigment Project group exhibition at New Mexico State University at the University Museum, which is opening on June 22nd and running through, I think, September 19th. And that is a continuation. It's sort of a next, uh, next stage or next opportunity for a show that Foreman Concept Gallery in Santa Fe um, held last fall, last October. And it's a show with, with a whole group of artists. The original one was 28 artists. This smaller satellite show is 13. Um, I have work in the show as well. There's work, there's sculptural work here, there are drawings, there are paintings, um, and, and excitingly, there are pigment sets. Each of these artists has their own relationship with special places where they forage, and uh, they've put together these gorgeous pigment sets in vials, little piles of dust, and it's really quite powerful to see the work that they've made right next to these sets of the pigments themselves. Um, I like to think of this show as a council of pigments where there are examples of, of humans collaborating with pigments and the pigments themselves spending time together in this show. Are there many different ways? I mean, you talk about a redwood pigment and you talk about an ochre pigment and what is, and, and I'm sure some of the process for actually creating it when you pull out the redwood bark or whatever it is that it's created from is different. Can you maybe walk through how something is made, let's say ochre, and how you can do that sustainably? Because I'm, sh I'm sure that some of the idea is to do it in a healthy way as opposed to a synthetic way. Mm, yeah, absolutely. Well, Maybe that's too complicated to try to explain There's to a layperson, but no, no. Let's let's just take it one at a time. Um, maybe I'm gonna do do your questions in reverse and talk first about kind of best practices when it comes to working with pigments. My own work um, with pigments and foraging, because we're talking about foraging, so going out into the world and just simply bending down, picking up little pebbles on the ground, maybe. T you know, talking with a plant and, and deciding to work with some leaves uh, or flowers from a plant, finding some wire on the street and transforming that into pigment. This is kind of, this is what we're talking about when we say foraging. So how can, how can I do that in a way that um, is supportive of the land? And I've been inspired, really inspired, as many, many of my pigment colleagues have been by the work of Robin Wall Kimmerer. Uh, who is an indigenous scientist, Haudenosaunee woman who uh, has written a book, amazing book called Braiding Sweetgrass. And in it, she summarizes hundreds of thousands of years of indigenous foraging wisdom in what she calls the honorable harvest, um, a piece of writing, beautiful piece of writing. So I, 
I, inspired by those principles, I wrote a sort of pigment version called the Reciprocal Foraging Guidelines for Wild Pigment Project. It's at the Wild Pigment Project website. It also includes some guidelines for human safety, which are quite important. If you're interested in this work, I definitely recommend looking at those to um, protect both yourself and, and the larger community. And so this idea of reciprocity is really key, and it's you know something that Kimmerer says in, in her writing is that she talks about having a conversation with her students where she says, you know that you love the earth, but do you know that the earth loves you? That's a really moving way to describe this reciprocity where it's, uh, you know, we receive from the planet and we, because we receive, we think about perhaps think about how we might give back. And so foraging is really uh, a context that I think brings that up for a lot of people. Um, these guidelines have to do with paying attention, knowing about the place where you are, um, depending on your, you know, where you come from and who your ancestors are. If this is your ancestral land, what is your relationship to this place? If this is not your ancestral land, if you're a guest on this land, then how can you learn about those histories and take care to respect the protocols there? Um, and that might, that's probably not just by looking something up or calling someone. Uh, that's probably through forming relationships with people slowly over time, through giving your own time to the land through work, and through slowly learning what it means for you to give back to a place. Yeah, and then on a basic level, it also means, you know, taking a very small quantity from wherever you are and, you know, not taking anything if it, if it seems like it could be damaging, only working with materials that are really abundant. And for me, that has, as I said, that's shifted, that's shifted towards working more with materials that have been sort of booted out of relationship uh, because they've been pushed into they've been designated as trash or discarded material. And so when, when I or others work with these materials as uh, pigments and as making them into pigments and sharing them as pigments and incorporating into them into artwork as pigments, it's a way of bringing them back into relationships. So right now for me, those are kind of my favorite pigments. And I still think that foraging is a really powerful uh, process for people to do. And I feel that it's one that should is it's one that I feel is is best done um, on a personal level, so that that the person foraging and working with a foraged pigment actually gets to have those relationships rather than just working with somebody else's foraged pigment. What have we not touched on here that you want to make sure we at least approach in this conversation? We won't cover everything, but what what's what's up? Mm. top of mind for you. Yeah, yeah, great. Well, I think maybe I, I have touched on this, but I think that I just want to emphasize the ways that um, that pigments for me have have served as portals into relationship with land and land histories and communities, that they are about dramatic reimaginings of relationships, to quote um, Dina Dart, who is uh, the director of the Live Oak Consulting uh, that actually offers decolonization 101 courses. This is how she's describing decolonization as a dramatic reimagining of relationships with land, people, and the state 
one that prioritizes indigenous knowledge, goals, and values, which I think is brilliant. Her organization is here in Eugene and uh, is offering these these one-on-one courses. So that kind of work, I, I like to say that pigments are homeopathic doses of revolution because, um, you know, in a in a context where so many of us in this dominant culture are bound by painful contradictions that are inherent to capitalism, it's really difficult to enact our values. But when we're working with little piles of dust and uh, material that's not absolutely essential for life, like food, but is very, very valuable to us, um, the expression of beauty and art, as you said, Barbara, in an earlier conversation, kind of is essential. And so we get so much by working with these little piles of dust. Um, and th- through this relationship, we're able to enact, to live our values. Uh, and, and for me, these include you know, educational opportunities, opportunities to uncover cultural genocide and erasure, um, ways to enact anti-racism, to build collective support instead of feeding c- competition, competitive relationships, um, especially for artists. That's really key to be generous with each other. Um, they give an opportunity to exchange gifts outside the money system, which is powerful. Uh, uh, they affirm interspecies equity and communication, and they um, also legitimize intuition. Collaborating with pigments is largely, for me, an intuitive process, and I think for many people it is as well. So um, to me, that is really what's exciting about this work. For people in the Pacific Northwest right now, is there a way, is the webpage, is your webpage and Groundbride and, and Wild Pigment Project the best way to kind of learn more about this and, and examine it? Or is there any kind of physical place right now in, in kind of the greater Northwest that's available? Uh, for Wild Pigment Project, the best place is the website. Um, and yeah, I have a I have a half year long course coming up called Being with Pigments um, that is there. So that's also an online thing. Um, but there are some other in person uh, opportunities co- to connect with pigments. There's a group exhibition at NMSU that I mentioned. Um, there's also another group, exciting group exhibition called Feeding the Unseen: Re- Remediations of Earth. And that is co-curated by Heidi Gustafson and uh, a friend. And that is open um, from June 3rd to the end of July. That will be up. And that's a really amazing show of also a group of artists working with pigment, um, specifically pigment processes that are uh, actively engaged in um, healing for the planet. That is in L.A., actually, at the Philosophical Research Society. The Philosophical Research Society. That, that's obviously another whole entire conversation. <laughs> yes, <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> yeah, I won't go into that here. But you can tell that it's going to be an exciting show. Yeah, and, and uh, Wild Pigment Project is going to be launching uh, an online, again, not, not in person, but online lecture series called Pigments as Catalysts that will be looking at stories and conversations about how pigments inspire acts of healing and decolonization starting July 22nd. I also just want to throw out there that it's a, it is a beautiful website and on it it also lists other artists and their projects. So it's it kind of explains in in some ways for instance one artist that you've mentioned uh 
goes out to John Day and does ar archaeological work. There's people doing all kinds of projects, and you can find more by following those links. Yeah, absolutely. Nancy Pobenz is uh, a, a local artist and is doing incredible work with at the um, uh, East, an Eastern Oregon dig. Thank you so much, Tilka, for what the work you're doing and for taking the time to come and talk and, and explain to to me, a person that knows nothing, and to other people who may know more about the, the really uh, important work you're doing. Thank you so much, Barbara. It's been a pleasure. You've been listening to KLCC Media's The Oregon Grapevine, fresh pressed conversations with people who are actively and passionately creating the present and future in which they wish to live.